The reflection tonight is on compassion in its cultivation aspects and in its fruition aspects. And even as I say that, I'm just so aware of how those two aspects are present here just now. The cultivation and the fruition. We don't have to wait for fruition. And for me, um, compassion isn't just the caring heart that meets suffering. Compassion for me is raw. It's very close to the bone. It's being real with the suffering, and it's being real with the awakening heart in the face of that suffering. Um, It's passionate. It's fearless in the face of fear. And so in that spirit, I was inspired to start with a poem that lays it to the bone. And it's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, who has experienced tremendous suffering individually, uh, the suffering of his community, the suffering of his country. Uh, He understands suffering, he understands compassion. He actually wrote this poem in 1965, when he was a lot younger. And he wrote it for a group of young people who were in a school um, school of youth for social service, and they were p- literally putting their lives on the line in their war-torn country of Vietnam at that time. And he wrote this for them. He said, promise me. Promise me this day. Promise me now. While the sun is overhead exactly at the zenith, promise me. Even as they strike you down with a mountain of hatred and violence, even as they step on you and crush you like a worm, even as they dismember and disembowel you, remember, friend, remember, man is not our enemy. The only thing worthy of you is compassion. Invincible, limitless, unconditional. Hatred will never let you face the beast in man. One day, when you face this beast alone, with courage intact, your eyes kind, untroubled, even as no one sees them, out of your smile will bloom a flower. And those who love you will behold you across 10,000 worlds of birth and dying. Alone again, I will go on with bent head, knowing that love has become eternal. On the long, rough road, the sun and the moon will continue to shine. So I also want to share with you that in terms of personal suffering, many of you know that Thich Nhat Hanh, late last autumn, went into a sudden coma that he was in for some time. And then he came out of that coma, and his recovery continues to be slow, but it's progressing. And the last story I actually heard about his recovering process was a very simple story that he's been doing some physical therapy. 
And without really using any words, after the physical therapy, he's been sitting down with his physical therapist and teaching the therapist how to drink tea mindfully with him. There he is, in the face of everything. So this is a reflection from Carl Jung. Simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy, all of these are undoubtedly great virtues. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend oneself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? Pema Chodron. To stay with that shakiness, to stay with a broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feelings of hopelessness and wanting to get revenge, this is the true path of awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic. This is the spiritual path. Getting the knack of catching ourselves, of gently and compassionately catching ourselves, is the path of the warrioress. So in terms of the reflection this evening, compassion, the cultivation of it, the fruition of it in cycles, this practice of compassion is equally relevant, whether we're doing it in a context like this, where it's very much internally oriented, or every single level of external action we're taking in the world. They inform each other. And the same way that our cycles of practice are ebbing and flowing here, we go through a cycle of deepening of some sort or another, followed so quickly by yet another cycle of agonizing purification where everything seems to have gone wrong and we've lost all of our clarity and insight. They cycle and they cycle and they cycle. And so too with our lives. We go in and renew and do the hard work there and then we go out and we engage and we manifest appropriate responses wherever possible and back and forth and back and forth. And so this uh, reflection will address both sides. Dr. Martin Luther King. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that the system which produces beggars needs restructuring. Both. 
So we'll look a little bit at the cultivation aspects and how to practice. We'll look a bit, little bit at the wisdom aspects, especially through the lens of the four foundations of mindfulness. When we're moving through our journey, we begin to see. And what do we begin to see? And then kind of woven through the whole reflection will be these large and small um, examples and moments of fruition. And how compassion is manifested through our practice and in the world. So I thought I'd start with going back to my own story a little bit. And a lot of you were here when we introduced the loving-kindness practice, what, a whole 10 days ago now, give or take. And some of you weren't here, so it kind of fill you up to speed. Because some of my colleagues have mentioned, you know, when they came to practice, ideas that they'd had, expectations they'd had, you know, interest or bliss or light or uh, this and that, And we all come into practice and we all come into every retreat with what? Our minds are conditioning some sort of ideas, right? And uh, for me, my situation was such that I came into this practice at the age of 17 at a time when meditation was not cool for teenagers. Nobody was doing it, at least as far as I could see. I'm sure there were some, a few, doing it, but it's become more mainstream and alternative teen culture these days. Not so when I started. And I came in through multiple ducadors, is what I call them. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here who's come into the spiritual path or yet another version of really engaging the spiritual path because something happened. No. Because it's difficult being a human being living a life. And you might think, well, 17 years old, I mean, how difficult could it be? Uh, Some of us actually know exactly how difficult it can be after 17 years of life. And um, that was was my my journey, really. So I came into practice, uh, firstly, with a body that appeared from the outside to be uh, young. It was young. Young, healthy, and strong. And in fact, what had happened was I had been in a, a serious enough car accident about six months before I started meditating, that my experience of being in a body was that of constant low-level pain. It was really, really uncomfortable to be in the body. I was also dealing with a situation uh, at that time and up to the time that I started sitting many, many retreats in my early 20s where I was the primary caregiver, one of the primary caregivers for my mother, who was actually sick for 10 years. Uh, different illnesses, complex illnesses. And so my very first long retreat here, uh, she had just passed away after a second round of cancer. I was deeply grieving. I was grieving both her loss, but I was also grieving all the losses before she actually died that I hadn't had space to grieve. So my heart was broken, and there was this huge, what I called concrete bunker in front of my heart. I was tough. I think back on that now, and I think, I can't believe how tough I was. I look at myself now, I go, wow, I was really that tough. It's like, yeah, I was, because I needed to be. 
The conditions life presented to me required that. And so I manifested that. And there was this concrete bunker in front of my heart. And that thing could take a nuclear blast at some points. Really, you know, some of you chuckle because you know, you've experienced that. It being built and then it being deconstructed and then rebuilt. Uh, Difficult. Difficult. And then I also was kind of a, a sensitive type in general, and so the pain of the world could sometimes be overwhelming. And I was in more of uh, on-the-streets activism in life. You know? We go through so many cycles of the way that we respond to the suffering in the world, and one of them is on-the-streets type of activism. And I was burned out. You know? I was pretty much burned out in general. Um, so starting to meditate... It wasn't exactly an easy thing. And as I told you about 10 days ago, I would try to be with the breath and the body was killing me and my heart was broken and I was totally burned out and I couldn't do it very well. And so my teacher said to me, oh, you must need a lot of metta. You sound like it's, it's very difficult. And I came up with this theory that metta was the preschool practice for people who couldn't follow their breaths. Right? Some you know, rudimentary practice. And then that first suggestion from a teacher, maybe your doorway is compassion. And that changed everything. That changed everything. And because my doorway into practice and my early years of practice were full of suffering, I think a lot inspired by that. It just turned out that for me, out of that suffering, my whole life's journey has been one of service also. And I think it's because there's been enough pain that I can be with pain. I'm not saying that I know your pain in my own being so intimately. We all have our own manifestations and permutations, and that's to be respected. But I know pain, and I know how to sit with pain and be with pain. And because of that, I care. And because of that, I want to give back. And it's been kind of the journey of my life. So what is compassion? Compassion is the caring heart that quivers, it's said, in response to suffering. And having actually been touched by that suffering, not just intellectually, but directly touched, there's this impulse to respond. And that impulse to respond needs to be balanced by tremendous wisdom so that the response is appropriate. And that's the great compassion. A few words that come to mind also when I think of compassion. I'm sure you can think of your own words, but a few. Uh, Warm, caring, pliant, responsive, inclusive. And I love this image from the tradition that says, Just as a tree in full canopy in the summer makes no distinction of the shade that it provides one sitting under that tree, so too the mature heart of compassion makes no distinction of the caring that it showers on all. Another metaphor that I know some of you have really been enjoying working with this month is the metaphor of the bird and the two wings and how they need to balance each other. And so one wing is the wing of compassion of this bird, 
and the other wing is the wing of wisdom. And sometimes it's said that the body of the bird is courage, courage, you know, of the heart. And when that all gets in balance, the bird flies. And boy, does it fly when it flies, doesn't it? So I became quite ardent about the formal training and compassion practice. And I think as I've mentioned before, over my years of long retreat, it was not uncommon that I would do, one, you know, if I did two months of retreat, say, which I often have, I'd do one month in the insight meditation and one month in one of the Brahma Viharas. And often it was compassion, uh, sometimes also compassion and equanimity, to take a whole month with the traditional phrases, with the traditional muses, and we will begin our journey in the afternoon sessions with the compassion practice on Wednesday. And of course, for those of us that have been here for two months, it's a revisiting of that flavor and a maturing of the practice. So I'll share with you the phrases that I developed. And again, there are formal phrases, and then we make them our own. And why I developed them, not because they're the right phrases or the best phrases, but they tease out some of the qualities of compassion. So I start with this simple phrase, I care, is the first line. It's easy to remember in a moment of duress. I care. The second line I use is, I care about this pain. And I chose to use the word this instead of my pain or your pain or our pain as kind of a reminder for myself about the universal aspect. This is the pain. Right now it's happening here. Right now it's happening here. Right now it's happening in the whole world. It's this pain you might choose to add a pronoun. The last line I use is, through the caring, may the pain be eased. Through the caring. That really attends to the mind and heart that out of an imbalance and the distress of it all can feel like something more is needed. But the attitude of mind that I bring to this phrase is that through the caring, may the pain be eased. Through the caring, may the reactivity, the extra reactivity be decreased and released so that the appropriate response shines forth and all the energy is available to give to that appropriate response. So it's not passive, but it's saying in this moment of the phrases and the practice through the caring, may that be enough to cultivate all the conditions that are needed now and in the future. So I care, I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Now, in the metta practice, we've suggested, and some of you have been using a hand on the heart. It's such a kind gesture. Just a hand on the heart. For me, with the compassion practice, uh, because this is the awakening mind in the face of difficulty directly, I figure, okay, I have the wonderful privilege of having two hands available, and I'm going to put the other hand right on the guts of things. And so you'll see me sometimes, you'll see others sometimes who have practiced with me a lot, and they'll have a hand on the heart, and they'll have a hand on the guts, and it's just breathing, breathing. Because why? There's so much defense here in the guts. 
And we all know that when things get disturbing, it's not uncommon for the guts to start churning. This reflection from Carl Jung, also from Pema. So we could put a hand on each one, compassion. And then I use the first line in daily life as well. The I care. And actually took it on as a project over a number of years to retrain the mind to first identify when suffering is happening. Uh, so that it's not as if the rug's been pulled out again and we fall in the hole. You know, oops, I missed it and now I'm in the hole. It's like, let's identify this, let's recognize this as soon as possible. And as soon as that recognition happens for me, whether it's the suffering in here, with someone I know and love, the world, communities, I'm actually having a first response or as soon as possible response of I care is so different than some of my old habitual first responses, which is like, there's a problem, I've got to fix it, or I don't want to deal with this, or fill in your own blank. And all of those responses are defenses that we developed that probably saved our hearts and maybe even our lives when we didn't have other tools available. So they need to be respected, those defenses. And we can also retrain the mind to have a more awakened and available first response. So what are some of the near misses? So traditionally we call these near enemies, but I call them near misses because they all have compassion in them, but they're just a near miss. So we don't want to leave out the caring that's actually happening in the near miss. We just want to clean it up a little bit, nurture it back to center a little bit, transform a little bit. In the tradition, the classical near miss is the miss of pity. Not pity as in rapture in the Pali, but pity as in... Pity basically is caring plus a little bit of extra separation. And the little bit of extra separation is usually to protect ourselves. So it looks something like, I over here, me, feel so sorry for you over there. As if we're really so separate, so different. So it's just a near miss. It's got caring, but a little bit of extra protection. On the flip side, a less traditional near miss is the opposite, which we call in this day and age codependence. Right? And this is, you know, a huge issue for some of us at various times. Codependence needs the wisdom of the two truths, the truth of the personal and the truth of the universal, because codependence is a misunderstanding of the personal or relative truth, that there actually is a me and a you, and we are separate. It overmerges, and the wisdom gets lost. And so it means if we care about someone or we care about the world, and we overmerge in a, in a less than perfectly wise way, imagine that, that, right? <laughs> that then we lose our wisdom, we get overwhelmed, we shut down, we can't respond in the same way. So with the codependent side, it requires caring for the pain of the codependence itself. How many of you have worked with codependence on your spiritual path any time? Yeah, so there's a lot of hands going up. 
So it needs a lot of caring for the pain of it. It's, it's difficult. And it also needs tremendous equanimity. So I will share with you in advance some equanimity phrases that I bring in with situations just like these. And it actually came from one of my previous periods of practice in India. In 2010, I spent six months um, practicing in India and, and some time traveling as well. And, you know, just meeting the degree of suffering on the streets. Um, you know, offering the rupees to somebody who doesn't have fingers. Uh, the mothers with the babies, please, ma'am, please, please, my baby, my baby. I mean, it's just, it's actually reminding me how um, this last trip in India, there was this moment So much need and and so much privilege here, really, in the end, uh, compared to that need. And this one woman uh, was walking the Korah around His Holiness's temple, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dhamsala. Right at the beginning of the Korah or the path, this woman came up to me and she said, Hungare, Hungare. And she actually compared to some of the folks who had come up and said hungry, looked like she was in a little bit better shape. And my mind's first response was to do that comparison and not respond. And I took a few steps, and it just hit me in the solar plexus. Just because she's doing a little better than the person who said hungry yesterday doesn't mean she isn't hungry. She was hungry. Oh. And so the equanimity to have the balance and groundedness and non-reactivity that we don't get flooded out by our own suffering and the suffering of the world. So we can actually have a response that's wise and helpful. Some equanimity phrases I developed from the trip in 2010 are this. I have my path. You have your path. And I care about you. I have my path. You have your path and I care about you. Then I came home and discovered that it works great with family members and colleagues, and it seemed to actually be quite applicable. So we need a lot of equanimity. We also need a lot of practical tools. And I really want to acknowledge, in terms of this near-miss of codependence, for me it was about a five-year practice in my early 20s, because given the conditioning that I'd had, being a primary caretaker, really, really young. I had a lot of that conditioning. So I actually took five years um, to work with it, and I worked with it using compassion practice, forgiveness practice, psychotherapy, and a lot of learning and development around boundaries, healthy boundaries, so that then I could move into the universal sphere of compassion and not drown or lose the wisdom. It was quite a journey. I have no regrets. It was completely worth every moment of that five years. Actually, now that I think about it, it has a great deal to do with why I can be here with you. And it has a great deal to do when we do that kind of work, how we can be there with others and why. So this is from Thomas Merton. 
to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is in itself to succumb to the violence of our times. We've got to find the balance. The balance is dynamic. It's not fixed or rigid. So this is from Jack's book, um, Jack Cornfield, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. He, con- he continues, Jack does, sometimes it is necessary to march. Sometimes it is necessary to sit, to pray. Each in turn can bring the heart and the world back to balance. First act wisely, our compassion must be balanced with equanimity, the ability to let things be as they are. Just as our passionate heart can be touched by the sorrows of the world, so too we must remember that it is not our responsibility to fix all the brokenness of the world, only to fix what we can. We each do our part, and every part counts. So another near miss that can come for some of us at various times is this term compassion fatigue, It's a kind of more sophisticated way of what I was talking about when I said I was burned out. So to conclude, a sense of overwhelm and exhaustion or numbness or indifference from too much caring. And I know some of us coming into this retreat or other retreats in our lives, it's like, oh, here's a place where we can finally rest. Here's a place where nobody is asking us to take care of anybody except this precious one right here. And we can move through the cycles of exhaustion and numbness and bring in all of our tools of self-care, of nurturing, uh, and refill the reservoir. I remember the first retreat that I sat here. It was just so mind-blowing to me, that very fact. It was like, wow. First of all, everyone's inviting me to drop the social mask and not have to like present as someone with someone else, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all looking to each other to see if everybody's okay, we can just be silent together, support each other in the silence. It's like, wow. And then realizing that the teachers were, and the managers and the cooks and the staff were supporting everybody and I didn't have to take care of anybody. It was amazing for me at that point. So this is from Norman Cousins, who's a professor, an author, and a world peace advocate. The individual is capable of both great compassion and great indifference. We have it within our means to nourish the former and outgrow the latter. So how do we work with this? I really wanted to bring in the voice and the work and the teaching of Joanna Macy. So much respect for her. A Buddhist teacher and, and activist and really a lifelong offering to the world and bringing together the inner and outer work. She calls the work the work which reconnects. The goals of the work. The central purpose of the work that reconnects, she says, is to help people uncover and experience their innate connections with each other and with the systemic self-healing powers in the web of life, so they may be enlivened and motivated to play their part in creating a sustainable civilization. And then she 
reflects about the activist journey. She says, the activist inner journey appears to me like a spiral, interconnecting four successive stages or movements that feed into each other. These four are, firstly, opening to gratitude. Second, owning our pain for the world. Third, seeing with new eyes. And fourth, going forth. So she says the sequence repeats itself as the spiral circles round, but ever in new ways. I don't see that as so different as what we're doing here. We can open to the beautiful states. Please do. Even when we're struggling. Sometimes we fall into these vortexes of difficulty and struggle, and they have their own center of gravity, and it's quite deep. We fall in the pit takes a long time to get out. But there are moments when we can actually shift the, that center of gravity over into these beautiful qualities that we don't have to wait until it's a perfect you know, day like today where the sun was shining and the temperature was perfect and the frogs were croaking and the turkeys were all this. We can do it right in the midst of. We are certainly owning the pain, recognizing and owning the pain. We are seen with new eyes. It's a privilege to sit with you as you're seen with new eyes. It's really touching. And we're going forth over and over again. The insights come and we move forward. And then there's another cycle of something maybe more difficult. And then the insights come and we see with new eyes, even with the difficulty, through the difficulty, and we go forth again. There's a practitioner I know that has a great line that speaks to this. What he says is, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Not only that, um, he's actually part of the Dharma punks community, so part of the general culture of that community can include a lot of tattoos. So when I first met him, I was actually sitting with him in a circle and he was sitting next to me and I looked down at his hands and on the palms of his hands in the most beautiful cursive, I love you, keep going. I thought, if I had to have a tattoo, (laughs) I don't have a tattoo. And here's the good news, you don't need a tattoo. I, in moments of duress, I look down in my hands and I see it like it's tattooed there. Heather, I love you, keep going. So there's a practice from Joanna Macy that she developed that I want to share. And it's called the Bowl of Tears. And this is a practice that uh, in normal circumstances would happen actually to community level, on a ritual level, including speech. But I see so much of it here in this field. I want to share it. And so the ritual of the practice is this. Water is poured into a clear glass bowl and it represents the pain and the tears for ourselves, our families, our communities, the world. The bowl is passed among the community and each person looks into the bowl and says, my tears are for, and they fill in what it is for them. There are poems offered, there are reflections offered, there is singing that happens in this ceremony 
And then at the end of the ceremony, that bowl of tears is carried out onto the land by the community and offered to the earth or to a body of water. It says, reminding ourselves that the pain we feel for the world is no private pathology. It connects us with earth and each other. Let us remember, she says, our tears for the world are the tears of Gaia. And so I imagine us, and it's already happening without us knowing about this ritual maybe. It's like these tears. And we are passing the bowl of who is actually manifesting the tears. And sometimes the tears are internal and they're not actually spilling out of our eyes. And other times they're spilling and we're passing the bowl, one retreating to the other. I remember being out on the front courtyard once And there was just a deep pain in my heart, but I just couldn't quite access it fully. And somebody near me walking just burst into tears. She was sobbing and walking and sobbing. And I just looked at her and I said to myself inside, cry for me too, sister, because I don't have the tears just now. Thank you for crying for me too, sister. We're passing the bowl And we really, when we have the tears, we can cup our hands and catch those tears or put our dear hands on our face and go, oh, this is hard stuff. And place them on the earth, which is our witness both to the depth of the suffering and the depth of the freedom. Both. So the far misses of compassion uh, include some obvious pieces like anger, ill will, and hatred. The heavily defended and separate heart is the far miss, the opposite of compassion. So for me, I always think about the role of patience in in developing compassion. And a long, long time ago, the time of the Buddha, in the full moon month of February, he gave a teaching to 1,200 awakened ones. And the first line of the teaching I've memorized, and, and I use it when it's needed in my own practice, it goes like this. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. And there's times when we really have to cultivate the patience to sincerely endure the suffering, to sincerely endure the difficulty. And a number of us in our check-ins have been talking about Uh, the power of taking refuge in impermanence in times like this. So we bring the patience to the foreground and really take heart and refuge in impermanence. Ah, this is going to pass. I mean, why not take refuge there? So I'll give an example of this um, on a systems level. I was thinking about Gandhi I found a quote from him recently I wanted to share. He said, I believe in the essential unity of all lives. Therefore, 
I believe that when one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the world falls to that extent. I feel like this kind of attitude that he had allowed the wisdom and the patience and the endurance to see the long view, which led to the success of some of his most powerful social actions in India. And the action I was thinking of in particular were the salt marches, right? So um, the salt march campaign was a response to what a lot of um, people in India felt was unjust governmental taxation and control of salt, salt that was collected at the sea. And it was actually causing oppression for the people. And so out of this and out of one of the principles of nonviolent protest um, called truth force, Gandhi would call it truth force, uh, he actually did a 24-day, 240-mile march from his ashram to a coastal village, and more and more and people, as many of you know, joined him. And they walked, and they walked. And the patience, 24 days. Not to mention what happened when they got there, and the beatings. But just thinking about the 24 days on the road, with a satchel over your shoulder, in the heat, and walking, and the patient endurance to willingly bear that suffering out of this understanding that there might be more, that there might be freedom, not just individually, but nationally, collectively, and the courage that that took. And so when Gandhi broke the salt laws at 6.30 a.m. on April 6, 1930, it actually sparked a large-scale mass protest that really was the beginning of the huge changes that happened in that country. But they weren't unscathed, right? So then we go back to Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, even as they strike you down with a mountain of hatred and violence, even as they step on you and crush you like a worm. Friend, remember, man is not our enemy. The only thing worthy of you is compassion, invincible, limitless, unconditional. And this spirit has allowed some of the most powerful social actions of our times and of the last generations. So we cultivate the patience again and again. And the patience includes cycles of feeling completely impatient. Those moments of, I can't stand it anymore. It includes that. The same way as the fearlessness includes the moments of complete terror. So we're meeting all of this, um, inviting again and again the attitude of non-judgment. And the way that I think about it is this, that the breath breathes in and the breath breathes out. And the way that I think about it is so does the heart. So, but the thing is, is that we don't judge the out-breath is better than the in-breath, but we seem to have this tendency to judge the closed heart is somehow worse or like not okay and the open heart is good. And we get in these cycles of this and that 
and, you know, judging and I'm okay, not okay, all of this. There's a way that we can surrender into the cycles, the cycles of ease and peace, the cycles of the difficulty, and not feeling like we have to take in an in-breath that encompasses every single iota of suffering that we've ever experienced or will ever experience. This tendency to go, I got to take care of it and resolve it and work it all out right now. I got to take care of every single piece of this today. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes we breathe in our difficulty just to the level of a single breath. And then we breathe it out. And that's enough. And if we can meet that fully, just in a moment, just in a simple cycle without needing to like make it more, deal with more than the system's ready to deal with, it actually supports the process. And how do we know that? Because sometimes we bite off more than we can chew and then we get flooded out and we shut down and we go, oh, I think I bit off more than I can chew. So the spirit of progress, not perfection. So compassion is wise. And in the four foundations of mindfulness, um, there are three characteristics of existence that as we get wiser and wiser, wisdom rises to the surface. There are certain things that we naturally begin to orient to. So I just want to say a little bit about each of those things. The three characteristics, what we see through both compassion practice and four foundations practice are we start to see that things change. We start to see that when we hold on, it hurts. We start to see that it's not as personal as we thought. So impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. So the wisdom of understanding change wanted to share with you or reshare with you the story of Bahia. It's one of my favorite stories in the stories of the Buddha. I wanted to share with you a version of it that is from S.N. Goenka's Satipatthana Discourses. In the Buddha's time, a very old hermit lived near present-day Bombay. Having practiced the eight jhanas, deep mental absorptions, he thought himself fully enlightened. I'm sure that's never happened to you, right? You're doing some practice, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think I just got fully enlightened, or partially enlightened, or something. I'm in the ballpark? <laughs> a well-wisher corrected him, telling him that a Buddha was now present in Sarvati, who could teach him the real practice for becoming enlightened. Bahia was so excited to hear this, he went all the way to Savati in northern India, which, by the way, is 1,007 miles from where he lived. 1,007 miles. He walked. Reaching the monastery, he found that the Buddha had gone out for alms, so he went directly to the city. He found the Buddha walking down the street and immediately understood that this was the Buddha. He asked him then and there for the technique to become fully awakened. The Buddha told him to wait for an hour or so to be taught in the monastery. Basically, the Buddha said, I'm getting lunch right now. Can you wait? And Bahia said, no, I can't wait. I might die within the hour. 
or you might die, Buddha, or I might lose my present great faith in you and these teachings. Now is the time to tell me the teaching. And so the Buddha actually looked with his sight and realized that Bahia was at the end of his lifespan, actually. And indeed, he should be given the Dhamma now. So he spoke just a few words to this developed old hermit there on the side of the road. This translation of the direct teaching is by John D. Ireland. Here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. For when Bahia in you, in the seen, is merely what is seen, in the heard is merely what is heard, in the sensed is merely what is sensed, and in the cognized is merely what is cognized, then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that, then Bahia, you will not be in that. When Bahia, you are not in that, then Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. This is Goenka's commentary. This was sufficient at the stage of mere knowing what is being cognized or the identity of who cognizes is irrelevant. There is mere understanding. The dip in Nibbana follows where there is nothing to hold and no base to stand. So the Buddha there was manifesting tremendous compassion seeing that things would change. He gave the greatest gift he could offer, which was a liberating teaching. And in fact, Bahia was freed of everything that held him. And in fact, soon after that, he was killed by a mother cow who was protecting her young cow and got reactive and got upset and killed Bahia, who had gotten inadvertently in the way but he was fully free. So in seeing impermanence, we can offer the greatest gift in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. And there's this question, how do we share our full freedom with others in this life out of a sense of compassion? In the simple ways and in the profound ways. So secondly, we have the wisdom of suffering, understanding suffering and its causes. And the story that I like to share with this one is another story about the dukkha door to practice. And it's one of our our great elders who's passed on now, uh, Deepama. I always like to bring her in in these retreats. Uh, Deepama was a Bengali housewife And before she started meditating, she had a lot of terrible things happen to her. In the period of 10 years, two of her children 
and her husband died. And her own health completely fell apart to the point that actually it wasn't clear whether she might also be dying, almost dying of a broken heart. Nothing was helping her. And at some point, somebody suggested that as a last-ditch attempt, maybe she should go to the monastery and see if the meditation would help. And as the story goes, she literally crawled up the stairs into the Dhamma Hall. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I sure have. It's not as if I've literally crawled into the Dhamma Hall, but sometimes it feels that way. Just like we're just dragging ourselves in the door. This almost like pleading inside for some solace. We tried everything else, and we just kind of surrender and go, okay, the bell just rang, another sit. I don't know what else to do. And that was really her story. And in fact, it turned out that what she didn't know was that she was a natural meditator, really a natural, incredible capacity meditator, especially for concentration. She's famous for her concentration. And out of the depths of her suffering, of her ardency out of that suffering, out of the power of her mind as she trained and she practiced, she became quite freed up. And the quote from the Dhammapada, which was so inspiring for her, is this. Clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. For one who has gone beyond clinging, there is no more sorrow or fear. So sometimes we really need to attend directly on the relative level to the suffering. But the actual deepest intention or invitation of this practice is that there's also release. And part of what that means to me is sometimes we really need to be cleaning up our side of the road and dealing with our stuff. And other times the power of the practice takes care of it in mysterious ways. And the art of the practice is knowing which is which so we don't inadvertently spiritually bypass and go, oh, okay, I'll just you know, concentrate really hard and hopefully that'll take care of it. On the other side, it's like, okay, let me just unpack every single thing that's ever happened to me, but I'm like a complete wreck the entire retreat and, and my mind never settles for two seconds. And then in between is where we work. So after her awakening, she taught the Dharma to... Uh, the local Bengali housewives, and she taught it to them in ways that would support their practice, like the mindfulness of washing the dishes or the laundry, you know, out of compassion that they didn't have the same conditions that she had to practice. But it was amazing how much that supported those housewives' freedom. And then lastly, we have the wisdom of understanding interdependent truth, right? The less personal or our connectedness in the face of difficulty. I'll often practice that way, you know, if I'm on retreat with others, which sometimes these days I am and sometimes I'm not. Um, It's just coming up really strongly and I'll just say, yeah, you know, everyone I'm practicing with 
has experienced difficulty, will experience difficulty. We're all in this together. And I start to orient to the us-ness of it, which allows this sense of largeness and spaciousness that can really create a balance to the kind of tunnel vision that we inevitably get in when we fall down the rabbit hole. So this is a story from the time of the Buddha. Uh, Kisa Gotami and the mustard seed. So Kisa means thin, and refers to the poverty that she grew up in. And Gotami is her family name. She's actually cousin of the Buddha. She married a rich man who mistreated her. And after a long time, she had a son. And she was so happy to have a baby. And then when her son was a toddler, her son died. Her son died of illness. And she went crazy with grief. Every one of us has lost something dear to us or lost someone dear to us. Just knows those moments where it's just like, it's unspeakable. And so for her, she actually externally, for a period of time, went crazy with grief. Sometimes it's more just the overwhelmingness internally. But for her, she carried around her dead son and went up to each person, please, please, my son, he needs medicine. And people look at the son, it's like, this baby's dead. What do you say to Kirikosami? Baby's dead. And so finally, uh, I think somebody encouraged her to go to the Buddha, and she brought her baby to the Buddha, and said, please help, I've heard that you're awakened. Help me, help me with my child. And he said, I can help you with your child. He said, go and bring a white mustard seed to me from a home in which no one has died. And if you can do that, I will help you. And so she started going around household by household. The same way as if we pass the talking stick in this room, each one of us would have a story of loss. And she heard each story Do you have a mustard seed? Of course I have a white mustard seed. Well, I can only take it if nobody in the house has died. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, my mother just last year. Do you have a mustard seed? Of course I have a mustard seed. Here, how many do you want? I can only take it if nobody's died. Oh, well, you know, my sister. My sister just died of an illness last week. This is a house of grief. And on and on and on. And so eventually she understood She directly understood. We're all in this together. That's why it's so powerful to practice together and hear each other's chuckles and hear each other's tears and feel it without any chuckles or tears. We're all in this together. She later became fully free. This is her enlightenment poem. I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace I have looked into the mirror of the Dharma. The arrow is out. I have put my burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisokotami, with a free mind, has said this. Sadhu.
So this is a quote that's um, often attributed to Kuan Yin. And whether uh, the name is Kuan Yin or is, or is Tara, uh, one or Avalokiteshwara, uh, these emanations of compassion. The quote goes like this. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom could they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom could they harm? So I'm very aware that this topic, this quality, this energy is raw. And I'm very aware that we're all taking turns going through the cycles of this rawness. And because of that, I actually want to end with a chant so that we can breathe together and bring our voices together as a whole community and really move through the whole system out into space, out into the world through our intentions, this quality of compassion. And the chant is from the Tibetan tradition. It's the great chant of compassion. Om Mani Padme Hung. Very simple translation of that is the jewel is in the heart of the lotus. And of course the lotus grows out of the muck in the mud. So our awakening itself grows out of that. It's not separate from that. So we'll chant it together. Let's chant it together nine times. And harmony is welcome. If you can't carry a tune, it's called harmony around here. (laughs) And um, it's also fine to just add your intention in the silence if you're not feeling like bringing voice. Om Mane Padme
breathing in that compassion for yourself. Breathing out that compassion for all beings. Thank you for your practice.